What is up, Brew Theology listeners? This is Ryan, and you are back for another Brew Theology podcast, part two on atonement theories. Make sure you go on iTunes, rate it, review it, share that online. Go to Twitter. We are Brew underscore Theology. Also on Facebook and Instagram, Brew Theology. Make sure you go to that website, brewtheology.org. Share that online with your friends. If there's anyone out there thinking about, hey, I want to start a chapter, you know what? We'd love to talk to you. So this is why we do what we do. Sure, we have fun. We have a good time on these podcasts. We're friends. This is a community that we built in Denver, but this is a microcosm. And so ultimately what you're hearing is about five to six different voices here on these episodes. And we have like 30 plus people who meet on the pubs every single week at different tables, different table moderators, different people who write content. So what we would like to do is to kind of uh, you know show you guys how that's done how to be a partner, how to kind of be a part of this alliance, this family, this ultimate friendship that's dynamic that we're trying to build across the country. And if you'd like to meet us, we're going to be in North Carolina this summer, Hot Springs, that is, July 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th. I think we're going to even stay through the 17th just because the plane tickets are cheaper. Anyway, we're going to be at the Wild Goose Festival. What's the Wild Goose Festival? Well, it's a huge camping fest for a bunch of progressive, like-minded folk who come together to discuss beauty and justice, music, the arts, and we'll have a podcast booth. We're also going to be presenting as well, and we'll have a booth on the main road. So come check us out. You can always email me ahead of time, ryan at brewtheology.org or janelle at brewtheology.org as well. We'll have some swag, some stickers, some fun stuff to hand out to you and just keep the conversation going. So uh, we'd love to see you at the Wild Goose Festival. Also, another event coming up, which you've heard about many times if you are a listener, is Theology Beer Camp. That's coming up August 18th and 19th here in the greatest of all cities, the Mile High City in Denver, Colorado, in the best neighborhood of the U.S. of A. That's Platt Park. The venue is going to be at Platt Park Church. We have 12 local craft breweries bringing in Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins to have two days of craft nerdum, philosophy, theology, new topics, some podcasts going on. We'll have tacos. We'll have beer. We'll have cornhole. Good times and stogies at night. Uh, all right. So uh, if you're listening uh, and you listen to the first episode, Atonement's Part One. I hope you enjoyed it. As you can tell within this episode, where uh, we we couldn't even we couldn't do that first episode with all the content that we had. So we're continuing that. We're con- we're going to talk about the different theories. And Dan, my man Rosado. The dude who edits these podcasts, by the way, uh, goes off on some Rene Girard mimetic theories. So enjoy that. That is a lot of fun. And about halfway through this episode, my Spurs and Rockets were playing. I think that was Game Five that night. Um, and so I, I, you know, I was a little bit distracted. I'll admit it. And so you know, here I'm at a place right now where by the time this episode is released, the Spurs and the Gold State Warriors will have played three games. This will be post Saturday. So tonight they got Game Two. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm recording this on a Tuesday night. Uh, man, my boy Kawhi Leonard's out. So if you're Zaza, you know who you are from the Golden State Warriors, and you're listening to this right now, I forgive you. I do. And uh, I, I think we should just create a new atonement theory called the Popovich Atonement Theory. Greg Popovich, I love you. And if you were go- going to be the next president of the United States, I would be right up there w- with you in Washington celebrating that good day. So Popovich, 2020. And we'll have an atonement theory named after you at some point. All right, guys. Peace.
All right, uh, I do. Let's uh, let's let's uh, let's jump to some Girardian stuff. Speaking of goat and scapegoating, and then we'll go back to these other theories. So, Dan, I know you like scapegoat theory. Mimetic desire is here because we're all drinking beer. Yeah, why are we drinking beer? Because we live in Colorado, Denver, darn tootin', and it's called Brutheology, so it's all in us. This desire. So, and beer is the scapegoat. Well, I don't understand. <laughs> Now, one of us is the scapegoat eventually. <laughs> so Rene Girard, he developed this um, mimetic theory. And it explains all kinds of things, at least in his view. And there are plenty of anthropologists and sociologists that are very critical of him, especially in his later writings where he kind of dabbled in a bit of theology. But his main thesis is that Humans are really good at imitating each other. This is the mimetic part. Think of a mime, right? And because of that, over time, people start becoming alike. They have the same desires. You could think of a small community that has the desire to, I don't know, a a small community develops the same value system, and they ended up wanting the same things. And what happens is that over time, Um, This thing is so coveted, and because everyone wants the same thing, attention arises. So much that the survival of a community is at risk. So they find the scapegoat, which is an innocent person, that they can all kind of project that communal tension and get on one person and cast them out like the the scapegoat from Leviticus. And once that person is gone, uh, has been killed or whatever, then that tension is released and peace is restored. So it's a means of attaining peace. And this whole mechanism he calls a scapegoat mechanism. And he thinks it's the foundation of civilization. It's the foundation of the world, in biblical terms, actually. And what he says is that up until Christ the scapegoat isn't seen as innocent. It's this vile person. It's a vile, it's typically one individual. And then it's not until Jesus dies on the cross and this theology is formed around it that we realized, like the centurion in one of the the gospels, that truly this guy was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. But there was all this tension at, during, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person, during that time between the Roman occupying force and the Jews who are being oppressed, there's all this tension. And why not put it out on someone who's telling you to forgive your enemies, but at the same time critiquing empire, you know, not really playing sides. So Rene Girard says that Jesus's atonement, um, he wouldn't put it in terms of atonement, but if it can be read as an atonement theory, it's that we're liberated because the scapegoat mechanism is only f- can only function when it's unconscious. As soon as you see and realize that the person is innocent, that power is broken down. So now we have a true path forward to live in peace. So does would Gerard then argue that that we don't societally embrace the scapegoat meme anymore? Like is that is that the language that he would use? Like did something change? after Jesus or was Jesus just critiquing this social struggle that we have? That's a good question. I think he would say that something did change. 
And the fact that now we typically put innocent scapegoat in front of, of, of the word okay. scapegoat is like a linguistic way of showing how we've progressed and we're more aware. Now, for and the you, most you, part, it's still operating, right? We do it all the time. You know, we have entire political campaigns, and this is on both sides of, if we just get rid of these people, right. everything would be fine. Right. And we believe it. We think these people are vile. And again, that's just an expression of some kind of tension in the community because we all desire the same things. Okay. Okay. Not that everyone desires the same things, but eventually we, we we're so we're really good at imitating each other and mm-hmm. that there's a mimetic desire there. So, and then the work of Christ essentially just critiques that desire or is it critiquing the way that we go about achieving that desire? It, it critique. So it's, I wouldn't say my understanding of Gerard is that he would use probably the, the, the terms of revealing. Okay. So Christ reveals what's been going on since the foundation of the world. The world is this civilization and, you know, wealth and power as being this primary desire. So Christ reveals that and says, this is not the way to live life. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. How's this working for you now? Yeah. Right. Okay. Do you, what, do you got, what do you guys think of Girard and this theory? You like it? You don't like it? I like it. Uh, I like it a lot. Well, and I, I, think this, I think it goes to kind of one of the underlying issues of, of different atonement theories, which is the way it addresses sin because, and Dan or somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I kind of uh, perceive the, the scapegoat theory is that it exposes sin on a societal level rather than, um, you know, Jesus died for my sins because he's my best friend. Yeah, what's interesting about Gerard, so if you read his earlier work, which I recommend reading anything he's ever written, but um, he goes and he does a lot of work with mythology. He says in mythology, they continue. They actually, all the stories reveal a scapegoat. And then you have in the myth of Jesus, and he, he's very comfortable with that language um, of myth, you, we see something different. The scapegoat is innocent. And, oh man, we can get really going on this one, but... <laughs> Um, what I like about Gerard is that, you know, most Christians would see as, okay, where does sin start? Oh, in the garden, Adam and Eve. Um, Gerard goes a little bit further in the story and looks at Adam and Eve's kids. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. It's the first killing. They both desire something and it's has to do with God, right? They, they maybe desire a certain relationship with God. One of them is jealous of the other brother and he kills him. And then in the Bible, it actually says that Cain goes out, which way was it? East or West? West? East of Eden. He goes East of Eden and starts a city. So Gerard takes that and builds a whole anthropology out of it Hmm. using these myths. So I think when I think of atonement, when I think about and speak about atonement theories, there are, a few things that I have to address in each one um, and, ha- and how these ideas are presented for each atonement theory. And that's the character of God, the character of 
the character of God and the character of Jesus, if those things are distinct or not, um, the character of people or like the essence of people, and then what sin means. And so I think with this theory, we, you do answer well um, how sin is addressed and that it is this kind of social force. Um, so what I'm, you're, you've now become like the, the scapegoat expert here, <laughs> the Gerard expert. But like what? Hopefully, I don't become the scapegoat. So. No, well, that too. That'll, that's later on tonight. Um, <laughs> Just don't drink all the beer. <laughs> but so, in this theory, like what? What's it saying about God? What's it saying about the character of God, or the character of Jesus, and if those two things are distinct or not? So yeah, I, I think I don't know what Gerard would say, right? Yeah, honestly, but because um, he the way his I, tradition is not explicitly like Christian theology, right? He's more of an anthropologist. He, his his background is in anthropology. Um, that's, could, the, that's a critique too, is that he's not a theologian. But okay. at the end of the day, I think he's Catholic. So he has kind of theological, um, a theological framework behind some of this, especially in his later writings when he right. kind of makes Christianity look, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, exceptional. And that's actually a critique is like, you're making Christianity seem like it's the only thing that does this. Mm. But um, I think the character of God is revealed in the fact that God is on Jesus' side, right? God is at work through Jesus. And that's, again, my interpretation is that God is at work through Jesus to reveal through his entire life and that that risk of revealing the violent structures. Mm -hmm. And this is why he critiques both empire, which is the explicitly violent and then the, um, Jewish communities, um, kind of complacency with empire. He's gotcha. kind of critiquing both. Gotcha. And I think it's God's work through Jesus. And really I would extend it through the, the people of Israel. This is not for me. It's not just a Christian thing, but mm-hmm. Jesus as a product of his Jewish upbringing. Yeah, you mentioned the prophets and stuff. I think they were doing something similar. But. Okay. Yeah, I really like um, the distinction that appears there when you're talking about God and Jesus. In that, you know, the penal uh, theory that we were talking about, where it's confusing, maybe from maybe our perspective now, that God would do this to Jesus and that He would require it of Jesus, whereas in this scapegoat like you were saying he's it's he's working through with Jesus to point this this to reveal this to people and i think i also like the idea that it seems like it the idea of societal sin versus this god thinks about me personally and what i'm doing every day um you know as far as sin goes and yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's an interesting what's take. what's crazy about this the theory is that once you kind of understand understand it You'll go, if you've never heard this before, I promise like tomorrow you'll see it everywhere and it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I think this also talks about, well, the way that, I mean, you can, you can take this theory and then apply it to any situation, but there's a, there's not only a social sin, if we're using that language that exists, um, but there's a, there's a personal participation in social sin. And so it, it kind of addresses both things and it's not so like 
your own sin, like the way that it was kind of presented to most of us in a church growing up. But there's a, even like the critique of complacency. Um, but like there is an element of me understanding my own sin in how it interacts with this social meme that's moving forward. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that, um, it also addresses sin interestingly because, uh, of, I guess essentially what I, the way I'm kind of thinking about it right now is that we, we tend to think of sin as like, Oh, you know, I, lusted in my heart or, or, you know, I, I killed another person or I lied to another person or whatever. And one of the things that we never talk about with sin is that the, the, the victim and the, you know, (laughs) the, the person who committed the sin, um, you know, there's always somebody who's sinned against. And so, you know, with with scapegoat it kind of um i i don't know it, it exposes the ways in which power um makes the powerless complicit in its own um wrongdoing because they say i mean man this is just like totally ringing true with a lot of politics going on right now which is like like cut you know i will do this for you i'll get i'll get rid of these people uh, and then we'll live in a better world today. And you have to have the the support of of the crowd uh, in order to make that happen. And so you you promise them things that you can't do, but ultimately they're the victims of this power system to begin with. And what the power wants is to keep them there. And what what scapegoating does is that it reveals that that power system to be you know void essentially and uh i've heard some some christian theologians that use this uh theory in in a church context um there's one guy i have in mind in particular but i won't say his name um it's interesting how uh so this spirit of scapegoating uh i don't know how much more time we should spend on this but um it's he labels it as satan that is the Satan, which is the accuser. That's what Hasatan means. Uh, it's the accuser. And then the Holy Spirit is the advocate. And what I like about that distinction is that, um, and I've seen it before in, in this uber charismatic Pentecostal upbringing that I had, a lot of times the Holy Spirit is confused, or I should say Satan is confused for the Holy Spirit. I think it is something that you can bodily feel um, when you're in a crowd and everyone's in agreement, like screw those guys. If we just get rid of these liberals or we get rid of these, whatever's yeah, we'd all be better. Like this was the culture wars of the nineties to be honest. Yeah. At least within the Christian context <laughs> and it's a bodily felt experience and people, they, they revel in it. It's, it's kind of Dude, disturbing. I, so quick side note, I, um, 2008 election, Barack Obama won. <clears throat> I went to a really liberal school and everybody was outside cheering um, like this celebration more or less between two dorm buildings. Um, and there was a sky bridge that went between these two buildings that was glass. And the one conservative, like the one known conservative at this school 
walked from one building to the other in the glass underneath this crowd. And I didn't vote in the 2008 election. I could have, and I was politically confused at the time. And I think the right person won. And so that's a good thing. But then something bad happened when the crowd started jeering at the conservative guy that voted for McCain. And I started jeering because I was, I like, there was this spirit of like, go with the flow. And like, there's also this immediate reaction of being disgusted with myself. But I mean, you're in it. Like there was, I was the accuser at that point. I mean, it, yeah, what you yeah. just said. Blew it, it's, ha- it's happened to me. And uh, what's, what's cool is that when you, when you have this in mind and then you go back and read some of the gospels, you see that this is what happens to Peter. Yeah. Right. They see him in the crowd. They're like, hey, didn't you hang out with this guy? And he's like, no, no, I'm good. Uh, I don't know who he is. Turns and then into, in the third yeah. time, he's like, screw that guy. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, I, I think the scapegoat theory is great for culture at large. Specifically, Christians can learn from this, even if it's not your top atonement theory. We oh, still yeah, should adopt sure. this as a whole. For sure. So what about these other theories? What do you guys think? We've got, we've already covered three now. <laughs> um, I kind of want to, can we talk about Christus Victor a little bit? Just because I, it seems like a good middle ground between the penal substitutionary and like the oneness side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just am curious what people say. Like, it seems to me um, that there is less arbitrary rule following to have, you know, like rules to be followed or, or something that needs to be um, satisfied in order for atonement to happen, but rather there, there are just like these, there's brokenness that becomes overcome. Um, and that's lately kind of how I've actually been leaning into atonement is Christ as rescuing us from danger versus, um, you know, being spilling blood to atone for our personal sin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does the Christus Victor require that God needs for Jesus to die in order for us to be freed from this? I don't know if I see it that way. Like I almost saw it as God... I- God intervening so in a, the ra- the ransom theory would say yes, but it would be less about the penal substitutionary atonement with the judge needing that uh, pound of flesh, yeah. so to speak. And it would be so the so this emerged Christmas victory emerged from ransom. So ransom yeah. was more about Satan holding the keys to this kingdom, which gives Satan a whole lot of power. Yeah. So the Christmas victor is sort of ra- it's ransom light, if you will. So there's still a Satan figure involved. There's still cosmic forces, demons, angels, the whole nine yards. Uh, so then my question for Christus Victor um, advocates, to which at one point, this was, this was my theory, this was my, I love yeah. this one, would be, do you have to have a Satan? Do you have to have angelic forces that are then uh, um, you know, beaten, tossed down, thrown, you know, or, or is this more of, could it be metaphorical? That then yeah. those evil forces speak to society at large. And so yeah. death is swallowed up, evil swallowed up, kind of fuck you, whatever Satan is in your world. Yeah. I mean, you were going to say something, Dan, I want to hear. I was just going to plug in that. It's interesting that if you, if you take Gerard's theory, the ransom thing makes more sense. (laughs) To be honest, it's, it's demythologized. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying everyone should do that, but that might be a helpful way to look at it. I, some of these are attractive to me, but I think they all have their, their weaknesses, but you can speak to that. No, I mean, I was going to say the, so Ryan just tried the uh, the Leichtenheiner. I'm going to take a timeout real quick. What are your thoughts? Yeah, 
This remember this, uh, I work there and don't get me in trouble. No, 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 good. I, I love Ron over there. He's a good dude. Thanks, Ron. This is an interesting beer. Yeah. I would say it's got everything that you would want in a sour, and yet at the same time, there's that smoky thing that's happening the whole time you're drinking it. I don't know what to do with the smoke. Yeah, that's why I don't think I could drink a full pint of this. That's what I've been saying, bro. It's a great ten ounce beer. Yeah, yeah. I'd even say good eight ounce beer. <laughs> so the three things we get with this beer. The the compliment is oh this tastes like bacon, the so that's the compliment. The critique is oh this tastes like a ham sandwich, <laughs> and then like the uber critique is this tastes like a hot dog. So those are kind of like the three realms oh, you get from goodness. people, and I'm, it's always now, in one now of I'm those. Tasting all that pork product <laughs> going on here. <laughs> oh man! So anyway, we can get back to Christus Victor. Can Alex? Can you speak to his his last comment? Is that can can Christus Victor be seen? Um, do do you need Satan? Do you need the the overthrowing? That, that would be my question to yeah. people who uphold this as their like dominant theory. Because because I think I would agree with you that there's things within this that work. Does Satan have to be a bean? Do angelic forces right. have to be beans for this to yeah. become a theory? And so I I don't think so. You know, you may not then not call it Christus Victor, but for me it's. Um, it, it raises some interesting, challenging questions about the three omni assumptions about God, um, most notably like the omnipotent, the all-powerful. So <clears throat> if God is all-powerful, we, we need an atonement theory that allows for all of his power. And so penal substitutionary works because he has the power to define the rules. We break the rules. He has the power to inter- intervene and interpose blood through Christ to do that with Christus Victor, on the other hand, I think it, I don't see the need for a Satan for like extra worldly forces or otherworldly forces. Um, and so it rather there is just a, a nature of brokenness. Like there's an element of humanity that is broken and Christ's work on the cross is a rescuing us from that brokenness and from that danger. But that, if you buy into that, the assumption then is that the, that God does not have all power because there is brokenness beyond his control. And so it, it, it breaks that assumption about God, but if you're into process theology, then that's fine. So, yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. I, I'll speak for Dan and I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if you, if you move away from some of those, those capital O assumptions about the, the nature of God, some of that systematic theology that we all grew up reading or being preached at, um, you know, you can remove the, these opposing forces, these opposing, uh, sentient forces even, and just be okay with brokenness. And then for me, Christus Victor comes in and is a rescuing from a river, you know, like a rescuing from this tide of danger. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think one of the critiques that I would have with Christus Victor would be, why did it take thousands of years to get to this point in history? And so then again, this goes back to the the God that, that somebody chooses to ascribe to. And this is why the omni omnipotent, omniscient God has has to has to leave the room, in my opinion, if you're gonna adopt this theory. Your critique actually also critiques the Trinity, but I, we won't go into that too so much. So let's <laughs> let's actually talk about the Trinity the last bit, because we've got e- the Eastern you want to go to the, into the oneness, Eastern Orthodox yeah, tradition? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Because I think you have to have the Trinity within this atonement theory. 
Yeah. Maybe you don't, but I think the Orthodox would agree with me. The Orthodox, as they would say. That's not me. I don't know who you're... Are you pointing at me? <laughs> He's looking to you for validation. You should just nod your head and smile. So there's a theosis that happens within the atonement because... I, well, I think this, this one you have to kind of strip back and if there's no Augustinian view of original sin, then there's no need for this penal substitutionary atonement theory. So Eastern Orthodox would look at that theory and go, oh, it's irrelevant. Just kind of nice to kind of start. They have a different starting point. And I remember hearing this once from a seminary professor. He said, where you, uh, where you end and where you start are always synonymous. So make sure that like when people are actually talking about their theology, ask them like, you know, where are you starting with this? Eastern Orthodox don't start where Westerners start. And I kind of appreciate that. So if God is the, is love, his essence is love. And that it makes sense that then when Jesus does this and takes on this sacrifice, that then we are almost like with the moral exemplar with Peter Abelard, those kind of, to me, kind of go together to a degree. And I, I'm sure that if we really broke them down, that I would get butchered for saying that, but there is a, then you become like Christ, like Christ said, he says, you know, now that you see me wash your feet, you guys wash each other's feet, um, pick up your cross and follow me. Well, that seems like love. And it seems like if Christ then embodies the fullness of God's love, love on earth as it is in heaven, so to speak, which is what he does say, speakingly about Jesus, then yeah, I mean, there is a, now that I do what the father does, now you do what I do, like that we are one, John 17. It makes sense. Um, I think it's, it's a beautiful image. And I wish that there was there was more of an Eastern Orthodox tradition, Trinitarianly speaking, that makes practical sense in the Western tradition. And maybe Richard Rohr is bringing that back, and I, I don't know. He's not here to, to talk about that. He could be. Should we invite Richard Rohr on the podcast? Please Richard, if you're listening that. to this, you're invited. He's an Eastern Catholic, is what I would say. <laughs> but yeah. I, I do. I really like this theosis and this um, this oneness that we share with the divine. Um, I think what is challenging for us people people coming from our you know conservative evangelical traditions which is a lot of us are coming from thing that is challenging for us is is this theory this this way of looking at the action on the cross really embraces mystery and so it's less about like blood and torment and and it's more about the nature of how god interacts with himself and it's this dance this perichoresis i had a theology professor say uh, um this like dance between the father and the son and the spirit <laughs> and so dan, um dan doesn't like the perichoresis no and Dan doesn't. there's like a it. perimeter and there's a choreography going on there's a beautiful <laughs> dance i love it i like dan well actually i don't like dancing but i like the the image of it but yeah like there's we'll have this, to have an episode on the trinity and then yeah i'll be permanently crucified sweet <laughs> the uh oh i'm curious about this one um but no like this the way that that God is not the Father, God is not the Son, God is not the Holy Spirit, but God is the relationship between the three. And so that example, um, that example right there, I guess it is kind of this moral exemplar. Cause I don't I guess I don't know how the cross plays into that, but I think Eastern Orthodox, it it's maybe more of like, and we were then brought into that dance through the work of the cross. We don't know how. We're okay with mystery, but that's when it happened and that's how we embrace it. As Westerners, as like people who come from Dutch theology, we hate that. You know, we don't, that's not something that we'll buy into because it's not concrete, it's not black and white. We want transactions going back to the, uh, the whole systematic theology of the Western world. 
doesn't work for us. Don't give me mystery. Give me transactions. But even then, though, I mean, so the question that popped into my mind was that because you mentioned through the work of the cross, then we are brought into that. And so, I mean, the way that I might distinguish that personally would be um, not that 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 achieved something um, that like now metaphysically changed my relationship with God, but it showed me a perfect example of of oneness with God. Yeah, I dig that. I, yeah. So I okay. <laughs> All right. Let's end on solidarity and kind of tie this up. This one specifically for me personally is like that. This is this is my jam. I love it because I think you don't have to deal with the transactions. You don't have to deal with, uh, did Jesus have to die? It's more of like, he did die. There's death around the world. There's sin around the world. Going back to a lot of the Christus Victor as well. And within that, but here's the difference with the Christus Victor, is that uh, there's really not an overcoming here. I mean, you have, no, shit is real all the time, 24-7. God, where are you? So God is in the, is in the shit. God's in the suffering. And God's never been afraid get God's self dirty and murky and, uh, and messy. So uh, I, we don't know what it's like because we weren't around during World War II, um, but we have, you know, we have books that can tell us <laughs> what happened. And I think in a way, if we were ever in these scenarios where, like if it were our children, our, our you know, spouses, best friends, family members, um, where, you know, we would ask the same question. If there is a God, well, maybe God's feeling that pain. And this goes back to a God that actually is, uh, is the most moved mover going back to the process episode. This God feels our pain in the most, um, and in a way is impacted and changed by that pain. And that's stretching Moltmann. I know, but I'll, uh, you don't think it's, it's, it's you think Moltmann would say that God is actually changed. Okay. Uh, I'm getting a nod over here on my right. I won't tell you which person's nodding, <laughs> but Moltmann, if you're listening, God's changing in this. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I need a, I, personally, I, I would need a God after seeing two different friends die of cancer. I would need a God who, who feels and is changed by, uh, by that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess, I guess what I would say is, um, this, this goes back to the discussion, uh, that, that came up a minute ago was, uh, I like the way Alex put big O words for God. Um, because, there's sort of this assumption that, uh, you know, from a lot of people that, um, you know, you could have called 10,000 angels or whatever. It's like, oh, that option was always on the table. Um, and I, I don't know how Moltmann would respond to that, but to me, it seems like if you go full-fledged solidarity, then it's like, well, no, God was completely powerless in this scenario. Um, which to me is is more powerful in a lot of ways. I mean, Paul Paul would even you know we talked we talked about Paul earlier and he how he might have different views on things. I mean, a Paul says that um, you know the the weakness of God reveals his power and that the foolishness of it's the foolishness of God that uh, that that redeems the world. And so um, to me, that's that's why why this one is is really 
super mind blowing because if if God if God can't do that, then he truly is, you know, he truly lived the the human experience. Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to add that in this scenario, God is either powerless to some extent or a dick and doesn't intervene when he can. Like there, when you look at World War II, you have, there, there, it's hard to find a middle ground there. Um, even if people say like, well, God uses suffering to exploit and turn into good. Like if he had the opportunity to stop World War II and didn't, like there's a, there's a serious character question about God at that point. I mean, I, the the thing, I really like this one too, but because it takes care of some of those persistent questions that come up when you ascribe to some of the other, well, even just in the basic idea that whether or not God is, is an actor, like, you know, who's watching at all times and making things happen one way or another, or if, I don't know the names of all these theories, but the, the God that set things in motion and then just lets it go you know deism deism Mm -hmm. and there's probably others in between but you know to me god wouldn't have to be a dick to let world war ii happen if he's not an actor i mean and maybe you call that powerless or not but if you set it up that way in the beginning then he's not um god isn't choosing i guess um but the other thing about this one um that i think is speaks to me too is you know social justice is where i've been following with with my christian beliefs right now pretty much exclusively and you know world war ii is the western you know sort of linchpin for all of us as americans maybe as people from somehow descended from europeans or whatever but you know we can find examples of this every month of every year since then in the world and um all you have to do is go to certain lots of different places in the world that right now maybe aren't Europe. Um, but maybe again, and it may be here too in maybe in our lifetimes, but you can find that suffering. And I think the fact that, you know, you don't have to question whether God's making this happen or allowing it to happen. Cause like Ryan's, I mean, like you were saying, Ryan, I mean, when you experience some of this suffering yourself, even if it's not on the magnitude of, World War II or the things that we're talking about, you know, it doesn't make sense with this sort of some of these ideas of who God is and who Jesus is. And so I guess that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I I think that's a really good critique of even how when we're discrediting Western thought, we're also coming from Western thought and like hoisting up World War II as this pinnacle of suffering, which it was but that inherently kind of discounts the suffering in Syria right now, the suffering during the Vietnam War. And, and all the other wars that we, the U.S. has been exactly, involved in like that we, maybe none of us No, like that's were. a good critique of my thinking just because we, I mean, we, we're privileged enough to be sitting around in a basement of a cool house having beer and talking into microphones like that. We, gotta, we, have, we have our level of worldview and privilege that doesn't count for those types of things, and I think that's a good critique well and i think the reason i am assuming the reason world war ii was what's brought up with solidarity is that that was the event that a lot of these theologians are responding to right i mean right but i was just sort of adding that 
Yeah, and you had a lot of people who then became atheists after World War II, and that makes perfect sense as well, coming from a very conventional Western mindset of God. And that's why, like, for me, going back to the process episodes, I would say originally, this is so off topic, but yet related, open theism back in the day saved my theology, but process has saved my faith. My, my problem with, um, not my problem, I guess my struggle is uh, with atonement theory and with, with theology in general and this more, um, I don't like these words, but whatever, and, and, and less conservative, and my less conservative view is that at the, end of the, at the end of the day, what does God do for all those people who have suffered? And I struggle with that because Gerard doesn't have much to say about that. Process at the moment is still trying to say something about that. And I'm, I'm talking about people that are dead, right? And how will their lives be restored? Or is this just one great injustice? You know, the lives that we're living. Yeah, there's a lot of joy, but there's a lot of pain. Right. Yeah, I, I very much am offended when when you hear somebody say like you know god always comes through god always has a plan god is always there for you and he's not there for you for the like the 10 homeless people that froze to death in denver this year like the, i don't know if it was 10 but it were there were deaths due to literally freezing to death and god unless it's some fantastical mystery that we don't understand God in our view was not there for them. And so does, does this solidarity atonement theory account for that in some way? I don't, I don't know if it does, you know, it seems like it only does when you come out of the suffering alive and for the better, if that makes sense. Um, like we, I haven't suffered enough, I think to, to really know like, yeah, God was with me through that and I am better or worse off in this world but better off with God because of it. I don't know if I have had enough suffering in my life to be able to confidently say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the way that I might respond to that is um, the, the way in which solidarity is not just something that Jesus did, but something that we are invited into. And so it's one of those things as a, as a, you know, liberal Christian, um, that you don't, you don't want to make it, uh, you you don't want to make this the basis of guilt in the way we (laughs) approach our faith. Um, but at the same time, I I would say that, you know, a a lot of people who have it, it, whenever you give of yourself in, in any way, you, uh, experience transcendence. And, um, I mean, that is any type of, any type of relationship. I mean, you can talk about marital relationship where you sacrifice for the other person. And through that, you, um, you know, create this, create this bond and that can extend to any other type of relationship. And so, I mean, I, I guess, I guess what Jesus shows us is that um, in the kingdom of heaven, that this is the way that 
that the powerful um, <laughs> deal with the powerless is be- becoming weak with them. Um, and so that, that sort of redeems the world. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I still do agree that it's, it's not, I don't know if it exactly takes care of the whole issue. <laughs> so we have, yeah, we have a lot of language that's been used throughout 2000 years to describe God. A lot of metaphors, pictures, ideas. And I don't think we're finished with that considering that this Girardian theory is actually just a couple decades popular. Now, who knows? Uh, I would actually love for, if you're listening right now, if you have any ideas, pictures, metaphors, images that come to mind, man, like uh, hit us up. We'd love to talk about that as well. If you're a theologian listening, you go, they have it all wrong. Great. We probably do. And we're okay with that. Come correct us, but you got to come We would love to have free. you on the podcast. Because <laughs> we don't have any money. <laughs> no money. All of our speakers and our inter- interviewees are doing it because they love theology and some of them because they like community. How about that? So thank you guys. Thanks, Brian, Adam, Alex, Dan, for the time, and Rob for the space. Roberto is in the house. Seedstock, thank you for the beer. And go Spurs go. Peace.